morning, everyone. Welcome to Riverwood. Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor. And uh, for those of you who are part of the Riverwood family and forgot, I, it has been three weeks since I've been able to be up here to teach. Uh, so hopefully you do remember who I am. Uh, we had uh, three weeks ago, we did the baptisms across the lake. It was a lot of fun to get to be with uh uh, Grace Baptist and Denver Baptist and uh, have Jonathan uh, Davis, my friend from Grace Baptist, be the uh, speaker that day. And then uh, two weeks ago, I was in Kenya. And then last week, I just wasn't sure where I'd be at with jet lag. So uh, my friend Matt Townsley came and did an awesome job. Already some of you were threatening like, hey, Aaron, we could just get rid of you and hire Matt. Uh, that was really, really, really good. Uh, and I agree. It was really good. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, well, while I was in Kenya, the uh, World Swimming Championships were taking place. And so I did not have a chance to really watch and enjoy them. Some of you know I swim for exercise. And so I, I love the sport of swimming and I'm just amazed at these people that, that just, they fly through the water. I mean, they can get down and back, you know, the length before I probably could even do half of one length. I mean, it just, they're so fast. It's absolutely incredible what they do. And so when, I, I'd already seen a couple of headlines. I heard that a couple of um, uh, Michael Phelps uh, records had fallen. But uh, when I went on YouTube to go and try and catch up on NBC Sports and their coverage of it, one of their biggest headlines was Katie Ledecky loses the 400 meter freestyle. Now, if you go and watch that uh, video, you, you'll see you'll see Katie come in second. All right, if you think about it, second place in the entire world is incredible. Like I would be thrilled to get silver, a and yet they're saying, "Well, she loses." Well, the reason they had that kind of headline is you have to understand who Katie Ledecky is. Katie Ledecky is the most dominant long-distance free female freestyle swimmer that the world has ever seen. All right, here's how dominant she is. Just in the 800-meter freestyle alone, she has the top 20 fastest swims in history. All right, she doesn't just own the world record. She owns the next 19 fastest swims. I mean, usually when Katie gets done swimming... She not only has caught her breath before the next person touches, she's had a couple slices of pizza and a manicure. Right? She is so far out. And so when an 18-year-old Australian beats her in the 400 meter, the headline is not Katie Ledecky takes silver, it's Katie Ledecky loses. Well, what they didn't know was that Katie was sick. It turns out she was dehydrated. She was having dizzy spells. In fact, in one of the heats for the 1,500-meter swim, she said she almost quit. And when a competitor like Katie says, I don't think I can even finish, you know she's sick. So she ended up take, cutting herself out of the 1,500 and took two days off just to try and rest, to get some fluids back in her. And so two days later, she's like, all right, I'm going to give it a try. And she came back for the 800-meter swim, and she made it into the finals. So as I clicked on the, the YouTube video of the finals, Rowdy Gaines, one of the announcers, basically starts defending Katie. She's the greatest swimmer, that, you know, the females, uh, you know, freestyle, long-distance swimmers have ever seen, and she clearly was sick. And, and so he's trying to defend her reputation because everyone's in a buzz. That, oh, my goodness, Katie Ledecky actually lost. But then something interesting starts happening. As the swim starts, Dan Hicks, the other announcer, and, and, and Rowdy Gaines, they start talking in kind of these softer tones. They start saying, oh, Katie, Katie's not Katie. And, and, and Rowdy's even analyzing her swim, saying, oh, you can tell she's not using her legs like she normally does, or her arms just aren't, aren't moving. And, and you can tell they don't think she's got it. And she's in the lead, 
but it's not a lead like she normally has. And at about the halfway point, the 400 meter mark, the Italian swimmer in the lane next to her begins to catch. And by 500 meters, the Italian swimmer is now neck and neck with Katie and begins to pass her. And at that point, Rowdy Gaines says, I've always said this Italian swimmer is the one to beat in this category, in this event. You know, and, and by 600 meters, the, the Italian's got a lead that, that basically Dan and Rowdy are ready to just hand the title over to uh, the, the Italian swimmer. But then something happens. Katie begins to hang with the Italian and catch back up to her that with 100 meters to go, they now make the turn at the same time. And suddenly, Rowdy and Dan shift from, oh no, isn't this so sad? To, oh my goodness, look what Katie is doing. And they even go so far as, well, Katie may not be Katie right now, but she's got the heart of a champion. In fact, Rowdy Gaines at one point says, if anyone were to doubt the heart of Katie Ledecky, they're an idiot. You know, like they're, you know, they're like cheering for her. But yet, you can tell they don't think she can do it. And so here's how the call happens at the very end of the meet. Here. She is being pressed to the end here by Quattarella, who has taken over the lead by just two tenths as they turn for home. Final 50 meters, but look at Ledecky explode off the wall to take the clear lead. Wow, did you see that turn in that first 25? There she goes. As if to say, I'm not feeling well, but I'm still Katie Ledecky. Exploded off that final turn and is on her way to her fourth 800 free title in a row. Katie Ledecky with the heart of a champion gets it done. Who knew that an eight-minute swim could have such emotional roller coaster ride? I mean, it was from, oh, she's, she's the best. Oh, no, I don't think she's herself. Oh, my goodness, look what she's doing. This is why we watch sports. This is why we watch movies. It's why we read books. For some of us, it's even why we get married or why we have kids. We want to have some sort of emotional roller coaster ride that we can jump on and we can feel all the feels because that's when we feel alive and excited. The thing is, we all approach emotions from very different places. Uh, imagine, if you will, a spectrum. Some of you, you're more on the more emotional side of the spectrum. Like, you tend to think with your gut, not with your head. Like, even if all the facts say you need to go this way, if your gut says you go this way, that's what you're going to do. And in fact, when you talk with someone, you judge how truthful it is based on how much they seem to really believe it. Like, if they don't show much passion, you're a little skeptical. You're not sure that, ah, you know, you want to see, like, do they feel it? Do they really know it? This is how you live. And you just kind of wear your emotions out on your sleeve. It's just who you are. But some of you, you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're at a place where you don't even trust emotion. You've seen people make decisions based on emotion, and it's led them to the wrong thing. And so as much as you can, you try to make emotion a non-factor. And you just want the facts laid out so that you know you've made the right decision. In fact, when you talk with someone and they get really, really passionate, there's a part of you that gets skeptical because being more emotional about it doesn't make it more true. And so you wish that they would just kind of shelve the emotion, set it aside, just lay out the case, and now you can determine whether they're right or not. In fact, you don't wear emotion on your sleeve because for you, emotion actually reveals weakness. 
You don't like anyone really knowing what's going on in you because now you feel exposed, you feel vulnerable. So you try to mute your expression. You try to just be calm. You don't get too excited. You don't get too sad. You watch Katie Ledecky swim and you're like, oh, that's nice. And the way we see our, the way we deal our emotions affects the way we do our relationships, whether it be marriage, parenting, friendship, our neighbors, coworkers. It, it affects the way we approach our job or we approach our schoolwork. It, it affects the things that we choose to watch or listen to. And it also affects the way that we worship. If you're on that more emotional side of the spectrum, if you're a Jesus follower, it's not uncommon for you to cry when you start thinking about the cross of Jesus. It's, it's nothing for you to like burst out in a smile or to raise your hands as you just think about the love of God. Like, like this is the way you connect. And, and it's kind of like a, a, a fan at a football game when their team scores a touchdown. You can't help but stand and cheer. That's how you worship God. Those of you on the less emotional side, though, you're far more comfortable with your hands in your pockets than up in the air. Like for you, it's not so much about the emotion of it all, but is the song theologically accurate? Is the pastor really teaching what the word of God says or just what he wants it to say? Like for you, 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 let's set aside the emotion and let's just really understand it. And so what happens is you end up getting people with churches that are filled with a bunch of people who are just like them. Yeah, the church where everyone's raising their hands, they're singing out, their expression is just out there. And the person who has a little less expression just doesn't quite feel comfortable. And vice versa, the person who wants to have a lot of expression, they go to a church where it's a little more quiet, and they start thinking, I don't know about this, I don't think this is the right church. And this is a problem because so often we judge others based upon our emotional preference. And we judge their spiritual maturity based on how we think spiritual maturity should look. And so if you're a more emotional person, you're going to look at the person who shows less emotion and you're going to think they must not love God as much as me. That they must not really understand the cross. If they really understood this, like they would burst forth like I do. And, and, and so they're, they're not as spiritually mature. God must still just be at work in them. But the person who's less emotional looks at those who are on that emotional side and thinks, man, they're just not stopping to think. They're, they're, they're so caught up in their emotion. They're, they're far more prone to get caught up in heresy, to make wrong decisions. They, they just get caught up in the fervor of it all, and they forget what it means to be grounded in the word. And so you sit there and judge each other, and it causes the church to be fractured. So what do we do? Do we embrace emotion? Do, do we ignore it? Do we try to mute it? Do we judge each other? Like, is it a good gauge of spiritual maturity? Or do we just avoid this topic entirely so that we can just be comfortable and let's move on to something more important? Well, today's topic is the gospel and emotion. So clearly we're not going to avoid the subject today. In fact, we're going to dive in. And I think some of you will find it challenging. Because if you're on that less emotional side of things, you're going to hear me say today that emotions are natural. They're actually given to us by God. You see, emotions were not a result of the fall of Adam and Eve's sin. Emotions were given to Adam and Eve before they ever sinned. Those of you, though, who are on that more emotional side, you're going to be challenged because you're going to hear 
that Satan has then twisted through the fall our emotions. And so we are not to allow our emotions to rule over us, nor are there something that we trust. Rather, God has given us emotions to understand him better, but to also drive us, to move us toward him. They are a gift from him to us. And so we're not going to ignore emotion, but we're not going to get caught up in emotion. Instead, we're going to seek to get caught up in Jesus. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we dive into 2 Corinthians 2, would you teach us today? Would you help us to see who you are and what you've done and how you are the one who's created emotion? And for those of us here, uh, as we get pushed by you a little bit, would you help us to be open that those of us, if you're wanting to move some of us to be a little more emotional, help us, Father, to, to have the courage to just be honest with how we're feeling. And for those of us who get really caught up in emotion, help us, Father, to not just chase after a feeling, but rather to, to truly chase after you so that we find our wholeness in the gospel, not just in an emotional roller coaster ride. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, would you go ahead and open it up? Uh, Parker, would you do me a favor? Would you just fl- step over there and flip the, one of those light switches up? Uh, the other one. Yep. The, there you go. Thank you. All right. So pull out your Bible. Open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, we are today kind of concludes uh, a part of our everyday gospel series. We're doing this everyday gospel series uh, four times throughout uh, 2019. Last, uh, back in February, we did the relationship edition. Right now, we're in the self edition. And uh, next week, we start the money edition. Uh, Luke last week taught on uh, as part of the self edition on the gospel and our identity. And then last week, uh, Matt Townsley taught uh, on the gospel and our past. And so today we're going to look at the gospel and emotion. How does the gospel speak into our emotions and how we express them? And so to help us understand that, we're going to be going into 2 Corinthians chapter 2. However, for us to truly understand what we're going to read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we actually need to go back to 1 Corinthians Because there's something Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that he comes back and addresses again here in 2 Corinthians. To understand that, we need to understand Corinth. Uh, The city of Corinth was located in what is now modern-day Greece. And if you notice on the map, it is in a very, very, very strategic location. It's located right at this isthmus between the northern and southern parts of what is now we know as Greece. And so if you're going from the northern part of Greece to the southern part, you'd go right through Acacia, I mean, uh, through uh, Corinth or vice versa. But you also notice it's right on a port. And so a lot of ship traffic was coming in. And it was a perfect place for someone to get off a ship, cross across the country and get on a ship on the other side of the isthmus. Right? It was a lot faster than trying to go all the way around. And so there was all this traffic coming in. What that meant was a lot of trade was happening. And because there's a lot of trade, a lot of people are coming from for money, uh, economics, and, and they bring with them their language, their culture, their religion. And so Corinth ended up being this huge melting pot of all these different cultures all around. And that meant people were bringing in their religious practices, they were, they were bringing in their, their family practices, but it also meant they were bringing in lots of different practices. And these practices were infiltrating into the church in Corinth. And so that's why Paul had to write to this church. Last week when Matt taught from 2 Corinthians, uh, he said, uh, I, I knew that there was at least another letter to, to Corinth 
that we didn't that is not in the scripture. So we've got first and second Corinthians, and then we know there's at least another letter. Matt said last week some scholars think there's actually a fourth letter that that went to Corinth. All right, so Paul, if this is true, he's written them four times, basically because you guys are a mess. Uh, in Riverwood's first year of existence, we studied the book of 1 Corinthians. We did it as a bunch of little mini-series. And what we saw was Paul had to address the idea of, of division. Uh, some people within the church were saying, well, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Paulo. Some were saying, I follow Peter. And, and, and so Paul's like, no, guys, you follow Jesus. So he's trying to deal with his divisions. Uh, he had to deal with communion, the way they were operating their worship services, uh, food sacrificed to idols. I mean, he was dealing with a wide variety of things that the culture was pushing onto this church. And one of those topics was sex. Now, I realize that today we've got a number of kids with us, all right? Our Kids Creek Elementary and preschool kids are with us. So I'm going to try to handle this very, very carefully. But I'm going to try and state it in a way that parents, you, if you need to, you can talk with your kids later if they ask questions. But I'm going to try and stay up here so that it's appropriate for all of us. But we have to talk about it because it's going to help us understand 2 Corinthians 2. You see, Corinth being the city it was, had all these cultures bringing their religious and, and cultural practices in. And so that's why their archaeology discovered there was at least one temple, maybe more, that employed ritual uh, religious prostitution as part of the worship there. Uh, there was also, uh, it, it, this was in the time of the Roman Empire. And there were Roman uh, people in the upper class, upper middle class, that they had slaves. But some of those slaves were not just for work purposes. I think you can figure out what they're there for. And it wasn't just men owning women. Sometimes it was even young boys. And then you also had a culture that some Greek philosophers believed that same-sex relationships were actually better and more pure than opposite uh, sex relationships. So you've got all this confusion in the city. And there's this little church of people who come out of these various religions and cults to understand that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. But this culture around them is saying all these things. And so they're trying to sort through it all. And one of the things that they end up doing is they take this idea of grace and run with it. You see, they knew they had done things that were wrong, that were sinful. But they knew that God had forgiven them through the cross. And so because God had given them grace, they wanted to give others grace. But the problem was, they gave so much grace that it ceased to be grace. In order for grace to actually be grace, there has to at least be an acknowledgement that this is wrong. But if you wipe away anything and say, well, you know what? Anything goes. Now you're not giving grace. You're just giving licentiousness. You're just giving permission to do anything and everything you want. And that's what happened to the church. They reached a place there in Corinth where they actually were accepting of a man who was sleeping with his stepmom. And they were embracing him, saying, look how loving and grace-filled we are. Because, I mean, look at all these other things going on within our culture. And look. We're so filled with grace, we're even accepting and loving him. And Paul knows that sex was to be saved. It was created by God, this beautiful act, to be put into marriage, the safe confines of one man and one woman, to be enjoyed for a lifetime. And here they were embracing that which was not to be. So Paul writes to him and says, guys, you should not be embracing this. You should be disciplining this guy. Because he is harming the gospel. He's harming your church. He's harming himself. And he's harming our witness before this unbelieving world around us. And so the Corinthian church took it to heart and kicked the guy out and went so far that they went from giving so much grace that it was no longer grace to now giving no grace. 
And they just cut it hard and fast. And Paul heard about it and had to address it. That's where we come there in 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, now he's talking about this this man, for such a one, uh, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul starts this second chapter basically saying, hey guys, I wanted to come and visit you, but, but I feared it would just really, really hurt. Like it would bring you a lot of pain and bring me a lot of pain. Have you ever been around someone, maybe it was a boss or a teacher, or maybe it was a parent, that no matter what you did, it was never enough? Like, they could even give you very clear directions. You do it exactly as they say, and they'll still come in and find something wrong. That's what Paul feared would happen. He feared he would come in and be going, guys, I wrote you this in the letter. This is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And he didn't want to cause them more pain. And so, he, and I don't think that he was afraid of confrontation. If he was afraid of confrontation, he wouldn't have written these letters. I, I think it was, all right, I wrote you a letter. Now I'm just going to let God work. I'm going to let you guys take the time to work on these issues. I want to see if you will be obedient and truly listen. So he says, I, I, I'm going to stay away. But it wasn't just him that feared would bring them pain. If you notice in there, he's saying that they're bringing pain to someone and by doing so, they're painting themselves. It, it was there in verses 6 through 8. As he's talking about this gentleman that was sleeping with his stepmom, says, for such a one, so for this man, this punishment by the majority is enough, right? So you've disciplined him, you've in a sense kicked him out, and there seems to be repentance. So verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, guys, you swung too far. I, I think this is why sometimes we uh, get really frustrated with politicians because they'll say one thing and then they flip-flop to another issue because it seems like they'd get more votes if they said that they believe this. And, and so they, they, they flip-flop. That's what the Corinthians have done. They flip-flop. They went from giving so much grace that it wasn't grace to now giving absolutely no grace, just being harsh and legalistic. Paul's like, guys, the guy's repentant. Welcome him back. Forgive him. Give him grace. True grace. 
Now, some of you may be listening to this saying, okay, okay, this is good. This is fascinating. Learn about grace and, and, and forgiveness. But Aaron, you began this whole entire message by talking about emotion. What does this have to do with your point? Well, I intentionally chose this passage because it talks about emotion so much. And I think there is a lot we can glean from it. And the first thing is this, that emotion is natural. That emotion is natural. So if you are a fill-in-the-blank person uh, in your handouts, this is where you can uh, put your uh, pen to use and feel like you're accomplishing something. But emotion is natural. Just begin, if you've still got your Bibles open there, just begin to skim through there. What emotions do you begin to, to see? Like as you start there in verse 1, you see Paul talking about pain, a painful visit. And he's talking about his own pain and, and their pain. Then you start seeing down in verse 3, he's talking about joy. He, he wants them to have joy and knowing that they would have joy would bring him joy. But then in verse 4, he's talking about affliction and anguish and tears. He's talking about sadness. Down there in verse 7, as he talks about this, this man who was in sin, he's like, hey, forgive him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Paul is talking so freely about emotion because emotion is just a part of life. And so if you find yourself on the spectrum of just showing a little less emotion, I need you to hear this. I give you permission to feel. Really. You can feel. Like, when you hear something funny, it's okay to truly laugh. When you are mourning, it's okay to cry. And you don't have to apologize for the tears. Drives me nuts when someone starts to tear up and they start saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. You're mourning the loss of a loved one. They're worth your tears. When you're confused, admit it. It's fine. You don't have to act like you have it all together. You can even say, I don't know. Your emotion is natural. So don't deny it. Don't mute it. If you need proof that God has given emotion, all you have to do is look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus had the full range of emotion. As you dive into the gospel, you see Jesus express tears and sadness at the tomb of Lazarus. We see Jesus frustrated with the disciples, sometimes saying, how much longer must I put up with you? We see him angry as he walks into the temple. And he says, you've turned this place into a den of thieves. And he turns over the money changers, their tables. And this last week, as I was reading in Luke, there's a part where he's talking about John the Baptist. And it's almost like Jesus thinks a couple of jokes, not at John's expense, but it's almost like he's being a bit of a stand-up comedian. Jesus knew the full range of emotion. He knew what it was to be happy. He knew what it was to be sad. And Jesus is the only person to have ever lived and never sinned. Which tells us that emotion itself is not wrong. What you do with the emotion could lead to sin. And so if you start to have an emotion, you don't have to stuff it. You don't have to lie about it. You can embrace it. Don't ignore it. It's unhealthy to ignore it. Emotions are natural. I, uh, a few years ago, was uh, counseling a, a gal who uh, basically she didn't feel that she had permission to feel anything. Uh, I, I was around her enough to notice that when someone would make a joke, she might start to smile and then she would work really, really hard to suppress it. 
uh, or if someone complimented her, she, she just, she didn't know how to take it. If she was receiving, received a gift, she, she just, she shut down. In fact, when like something sad would happen, she just became almost like emotionless. And as I counseled with her, I began to learn and discover that she had such a low view of herself. She didn't think she deserved to feel anything. That is so unhealthy. That is a lie. Jesus died on a cross for you, for your sin. You are worth the blood of Jesus. You are worth everything. And so the emotions that God has given you, they're natural. They're not weakness. And so it's okay to have them. Now, if you're on that lower side of the spectrum, I'm not telling you that you now suddenly need to act really, really crazy. Right? No, you still be you. I just need you to know it's okay to cry. It's okay to admit you're frustrated. It's okay to truly smile and enjoy. God gave you emotions and embrace them. However, the second thing I see here in, in Paul's words are that we are not to be ruled by emotions. Emotions are not to rule us. Um, Paul, obviously, is talking about his emotions. He's talking about the emotions that he assumes the Corinthians are experiencing. But notice what he says in verses 10 and primarily verse 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Some translations, uh, instead of the word designs there, they use the word schemes. We are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. All right, so what are Satan's schemes? What are his designs? Well, all you need to do is go back to the very beginning. Go, go to the original story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God's design was to create life. He creates plants, animals, Adam and Eve. Satan comes in and he tries to take what God has made and twist it and make it perverted to bring death. By tricking Adam and Eve into eating of the forbidden fruit, it killed their relationship with God. And as God comes back and begins to pronounce all of the, the consequences for their sin, we see their, their relationship, their marriage is, is broken and severed. It's going to be strained. Uh, the way they interact with the earth will be, be painful. Even childbirth will be painful. There were all these consequences. And part of the consequence was that sin was going to be twisted. That is why we cannot be ruled by our emotions. Because our emotions are twisted. That is one of Satan's schemes. And so he's trying to get you to take your emotion and be ruled by them. So those of you who are on that more emotional side of the spectrum, you've got to be careful to not let your emotions be your full guide, to just lead you, because it could lead you into something that is not going to glorify God and is not going to be good for you. That, that's why Paul warned them uh, down there in verse uh, 7, says you need to forgive and comfort this guy so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If he's so overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, he can lose his faith and Satan wins. Or, or you look back at 1 Corinthians, the, the idea of these divisions. As Paul is talking about all these divisions that are in the church, if they continue to passionately hold on and be ruled by their emotions, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They're going to fracture the church and destroy it. And if the, destroy, if the church is destroyed, Satan wins. This is why Jesus said that Satan is like a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
It's why 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. God comes to create life, but Satan's design, his schemes, is to destroy life. And if he could destroy your reputation, if he could destroy your marriage, if he could destroy this church, he would do it. And one of his schemes, one of his designs, one of his ways is to get into the emotions and twist so that you're now being ruled by your emotions and not ruled by God. But Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesians, was cautioning them about alcohol, that, that they were not to get drunk. In other words, don't be controlled by alcohol. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by God. I think we could say the same about our emotions. Don't let your emotions rule you. You let God rule you. Be controlled by the Spirit. And that leads us into our third point. And that is the emotions should move us toward God. Emotions should move us toward God. Uh, in their book, True Feelings, the uh, mother-daughter duo of Carolyn Mahaney and Nicola Whitaker wrote this. Many people buy into the misconception that to be moved by emotions is a bad thing. As Christians, we are fond of telling each other, don't be led by your emotions. Well, this is partially true. We should not be led by our emotions into sin. But emotions are supposed to move us. God gave us emotions to move us toward himself in love and obedience. This is exactly what we see Paul talk about in the very uh, chapter right before 2 Corinthians 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins to talk about how he, he wants God to comfort the Corinthians, and, and he, the way he knows that God can comfort them is because God has comforted them. And he begins to describe some of the things that they went through. Join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever reached a point where you really just despaired? You were at the point where you're just like, I'm about ready to just quit this job. I'm about ready to just quit this relationship. I, I'm about ready to just quit the faith. I, I'm about ready to just quit life. It, it's something that a lot of us face. And if you allow yourself to be ruled by your emotions, you will. You, you'll, you'll leave churches. You'll leave relationships. You, you might try to leave God for a time. And, and unfortunately, some people even go so far as to commit suicide and end their life because they despair so much. Paul is saying you can't be ruled by your emotions. Notice he doesn't deny it. He's saying emotions are natural. This is what we experienced, but they're not ruled by it. Instead, notice what he says. It's part B of verse 9. He says, but that, in other words, the circumstance, the emotions, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Even as they're despairing of life, God could bring a resurrection. The reason God allowed the difficult time to come for them to experience these negative, horrible, downcast emotions so that they would rely upon God. If anyone tells you that God will not give you more than you can handle, they're lying to you. Sometimes God does give you more than you can handle. It's so that you'll be driven to your knees and come to him. That's the purpose of emotions. So when you experience joy, like on a wedding day, holding a newborn baby in your arms. When you have joy, that joy is not just to be joy. That joy is to cause you to move towards God, to worship him and thank him. When you find yourself mourning the loss of a loved one, you're not just to sit in your sadness. You're to get on your knees and cry out to God, the only God who can truly comfort you. 
And you find yourself confused. You have no idea what to do. You, you just pray to a God. You move towards him because he's the one who can give you wisdom. And James 1 tells us, if any of us lacks wisdom, to ask him for it and he can give it. If any of you are worried, you're worried, will I get the job? Will I ever get married? Will I ever have kids? Will, will I survive this cancer? As you sit in the worry, instead of just sitting in it, you let it move you towards God. And you seek him and ask him for a peace that surpasses understanding. Do not allow yourself to be ruled by the emotion. Instead, let the emotion be a funnel that brings you to God so that you can rejoice in him, you can cry out to him, and you can trust him. That's why emotions are a gift. If you try to ignore or mute your emotion, you are robbing yourself of an opportunity to connect with your loving God. He loves you so much that he didn't even spare his own son for you. He wants you. He loves you. So allow the emotion to draw you towards God. But sometimes we still need help with these emotions. And that brings us to our fourth and last point. And that is that emotions are clarified and corrected in the gospel. Emotions are clarified and corrected in the gospel. At Riverwood, uh, we have a definition uh, of the gospel. Our definition is that the gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the perfect and complete image of Jesus. The reason we have this definition is that we believe when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God's response was the cross and the empty grave. And so everything that was affected by sin that we see back in Genesis 3, God provides a way out to restore and redeem through the cross. And so that's why back in February, as we're doing the relationship edition of the series, we were looking at how does the gospel speak into marriage? Because just as the, the relationship between Adam and Eve became very, very strained, the gospel shows us how that can be restored. You, you look at uh, other things that were affected back in Genesis 3. God's response is the cross. Well, we see their emotions were affected. I'm sure Adam and Eve, before they ate of the forbidden fruit, life was wonderful. I mean, it was heaven on earth, literally. And suddenly, when their teeth sank into that forbidden fruit, can you imagine the guilt? I mean, the, the throat probably tightened, the, the stomach began to churn, tears come to the eyes, they suddenly fear. They felt things they'd never experienced before. But rather than let those emotions draw them to God, it caused them to run away. But the cross shows us we no longer have to run from God. The cross shows us we can run to him even with our sin. Because the cross helps us to clarify and correct our emotions. How does that help clarify? Well, it helps clarify that our emotions are true. They're real. They're natural. And we can have them and express them. For instance, through the cross, we can understand true sorrow. When we look at the cross, just like the song we sang, we see it's our sin that held him there. That, that he went to the cross because of us. And that should bring us sorrow. It's our fault that Jesus died. And yet, as we look at the cross, we also can begin to understand true joy. Because his sacrifice meant our freedom. Our sin is forgiven. It's no longer held against us. And so there's relief. And that should bring joy. And so that means when we worship God, it's okay to smile. It's okay to exalt in him. It's okay to actually have joy in Jesus. God wants that. He's honored by it because he took the sacrifice. 
And so for us, true joy is not when our team scores a touchdown. It's not when our American swimmer touches the wall first. It's not even the wedding day and the newborn child. True joy is found in Jesus. And as we find this true joy in him, now it helps give perspective to the other joys that we have in life. We also have a clarity on sorrow. What does true sorrow look like? True sorrow is not just when I lose the job. It's not just when the relationship breaks down. True sorrow is when we see my sin is what put Jesus there. But also the gospel corrects our emotions. For instance, some of you, you may struggle with with a low self-esteem. You have seasons where you go through depression. You, You think everything's against you and you sometimes wonder, does God love me? Does God even care? Why is he letting me go through this? But as you look at the cross, you realize God loves me far more than I could ever dream. And when you realize just how much God loves you, you suddenly have your, your, your depression, in a sense, corrected. The situation, it begins to change. And you can find a true joy in Jesus. Also, some of us, we, we walk around with a little bit too much pride. We think we're a little better than everyone else. And we got a little better house, a little better car, a little better job. Well, the cross also shows us that we're far more sinful than we could realize. And it helps to bring us down to a healthy place. You see how the cross can correct the times that we're depressed and also the time that we're too boastful? How it clarifies what joy and sorrow should look like? The gospel shows us that God gave us emotions. So we need to embrace them. We need to be honest with them. But we are not to be ruled by them. Instead, we are let them to draw us to the heart of God. Because as we experience these emotions, it not only allows us to enjoy the book or the movie or a Katie Ledecky swim, It allows us to truly enjoy God and understand him because he created us in his image. He is an emotive God. And so let us live with an understanding that we are emotional people, but we are to allow those emotions to draw us to him who gave us the emotions. So Father, I just pray that you'd help each and every one of us to get this right. Um, Lord, I I acknowledge that sometimes I ignore my emotions. Um... I hear about things in in this world and in this life, and it no longer impacts me. Even hearing about a shooting in El Paso or in Dayton, Ohio, and it barely makes a blip on my emotional radar. And yet, God, there's times where I acknowledge that I'm too uh, overrun by emotion. I get so caught up in something of this earth, and, and it's not going the way I want. And I start thinking that you are not sovereign enough, you are not powerful enough, and I allow myself to be ruled by it. And so, God, I just pray you continue to correct and clarify me and these emotions that are in me. Because, God, I believe that, that if, e- if each of us continue to seek after you and submit our emotions to you, it not only gives us the relationship with you that each of us longs for and desires, but it will give us the type of marriages we want, the type of parenting relationships we want, the, the type of friendships at school that we want, the, the, the type of, of, of life we want to live. So, God, that's why we come before you, asking for you to do what only you can do through the gospel, to clarify and correct, to help use these emotions to draw us to you. God, I also want to say thank you for emotions. Thank you that you use them as a vehicle to draw us to you. So, God, as we could go back into a time of worship, right now, would you let us authentically worship you with our emotions? I just pray that if someone here has been hit by this, that they would allow the sadness to draw them towards you. That if someone has something to celebrate, that during this next period of time, they would just use it to to bring their joy to you. 
That if, if someone right now is lacking peace, they're filled with worry, that they bring that to you. So God, would you just continue to work in us? Because you love us, and we want to love you. So do in us what you need to do, so that you get the glory, and we get the joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.